Hi, this is Paul. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff going on about psychology, the government, Jordan Peterson on Twitter. J Jordan Peterson is, is Forrest Gumping his way into 2023 in a fashion not too dissimilar from how he did it in 2016. And it's, it's as with almost everything in Jordan, with Jordan, he's sort of a lightning rod that um, everything just just attracts to him. I mean, the his his, his spiritual gift for getting into <laughs> getting <laughs> attracting drama is is seems to be unparalleled. Now, um, I, I just briefly appeared on Grim Grizz's live stream. I thought this was a, a terrific live stream. Grizz is. He told a pretty incredible story, and he's wrestling through stuff. And then he opened the channel, and Chad and I popped in. And let me let me play a little bit of what I played, and then I'll get into the the Twitter stuff that I wrote, and then we'll get into some of the Jordan stuff. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll mute back up. Sorry. You're 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 the real deal, Chad. You are the real deal, and um, that's that's why we love you. And you 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 really helped me break the fourth wall. That like you know. It's just people like the, some of them go to Daily Wire and get really fancy production values, but they're still just the same person that was crying. Grizz, Grizz, Grim Grizz is genius right there on display. I am behind their desktop monitor. So just go to Daily Wire and get really fancy production values, but they're still just the same person that was crying behind their desktop monitor. So and, and, and what he said right there is is just is just exactly right well I'll, I'll i'll keep playing it so that i can i'll play through the clip at least oh which, which is exactly part of the reason i still follow peterson and people you know say well i love jordan peterson but how he is on twitter jordan peterson is who he is on twitter too it's all part of the package i, I tried to help him but i think you know twitter I'm I'm curious whether the Shadow Cabal would approve me paying the eight dollar ransom to be considered a person on Twitter, and whether or not how bad that is, whether or not that would even undo the shadow banning. That if I pay the ransom, will they unshadow ban me, or is that a separate fee? I don't. I don't know. But, so so anyway, um, this this got me thinking this morning again about. Jordan and Twitter and just all the all the stuff that's going on. I commented on this. So so Drew wrote, how does Jordan Peterson, the biblical exegete, comport with Jordan Peterson, the Twitter edgelord? How would Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, analyze Jordan Peterson, the internet user? And and Jordan actually in his in this video, uh, the mean tweets Call video. The same thing, because they just hear you know, did he and Hurwitz, you know, first he, first he had this long statement at the beginning, then I was, I think I was on vacation at this time, then he and Peugeot and Hurwitz kind of walked through everything. And it's a two and a half hour video. So, so it's not a small thing. And I had some thoughts then. And as with almost everything else, six months later or so, four months later, things, things look a little different and you think more about it and you, you continue to sort of mull it over in your mind so and then and then grim grizz also was playing something from chad 
Chad's Friday morning nameless channel is again sort of grabbing whatever in this little corner hits Chad's salience hierarchy and he's working it through. And this really interesting video on the convergence of, of um, Ravi Zacharias and um, Andrew Tate. And I, I don't know, the guys on Grim Grizzes knew who this guy was, and I'm sure you'll put it in the comments section, but it was just fascinating how this guy was, was very much sort of feeling betrayed by Andrew Tate, because of course Andrew Tate has been detained for human trafficking, and there's a little video about Andrew Tate. I mean, basically it sounded like he was pimping some young girl, and and so this guy was just so clearly disgusted, and I think... I think Chad so clearly grabbed the dynamics between the kind of betrayal that people felt with Ravi Zachariah and and the the kind of betrayal that this individual felt with um, Andrew Tate. And you know, part of when I talked about when I've when I've talked a little bit about the Roman Catholic pedophile priest scandal, I mean Part of the reason that that scandal hit so hard in the Roman Catholic Church is because of their structure, because of their hierarchy, because of, I mean, these things aren't disconnected. And so it just raises all of these issues about the, the relationship between people as they hold an office and the, the flesh and blood, um, fallen royalty human beings that that inhabit that office. And, and in many ways, this is sort of behind the whole Jordan Peterson on Twitter thing that, that Drew brought up. So I'll, I'll read the rest of my tweets. A lot is made of the difference between Jordan Peterson on Twitter and Jordan Peterson on YouTube. Too much in my opinion. I'd rather have a clearer picture of Jordan Peterson through the lenses um, than through both lenses, both so social media lenses, than only through one. Helen Lewis in this podcast, uh, Jacob posted this in, um, Jacob posted this on Twitter too, gazing into the abyss. The, the new gurus, this whole BBC Channel 4 podcast that Helen Lewis of, of Jordan Peterson, British GQ conflict fame, and she has David Fuller on the podcast and she has a whole bunch of episodes and it's sort of like, it's sort of like she's, she's ripping off Chris Kavanaugh here. But yet, you know, these are these are really important issues because part of the sort of facade of modern secularity is that the monarchical vision sort of hovers above everything with pure science and and therefore there's no there's none of the contamination of of human beings getting into the science and with that science the medical technology and all of those things. And you know, you almost have a parallel thing with, say, the Roman Catholic Church, because this is the, this is the magisteria. This is the; these are the priests. They are above human contamination, and you very much get this, um, this, this transcendence that that they are above it. So then, when you have the pedophile priest scandal, it just all comes collapsing down, and people lose their faith, and you know, you you have a lot of this. There's elements of deconstruction in this for people where they. Um, they, they used to believe the Bible, but then they learned about evolution and now they can't believe the Bible anymore. They used to believe the Bible and then, you know, the church said that, 
that gays were evil and bad and they met a nice gay couple and now now they know that everything that they've been taught was a lie and the whole thing comes crashing down and you have all of this sort of you're you're setting up the you're setting up the sacred the holy the thing on earth and then it comes crashing down and and so again i ironically it, it, to varying degrees this this guy who's who's hearing about Andrew Tate, you know, oh, I, I can't believe, I can't believe all the things they said about Andrew Tate is true, whereas a lot of the rest of us are kind of like, I don't know, I think the things they're saying about him seem kind of plausible. And of course, people have that same reaction with um, with Jordan Peterson to one degree or not. Um, Helen Lewis in this podcast stirs up the whole guru thing again, as if anyone can live without using other human beings for your collective relevance realization. Twitter brings out the side, brings out a side of Jordan Peterson that YouTube doesn't, and vice versa. This was exactly Greg Hurwitz's complaint that Jordan, don't talk about these things on Twitter. Now, obviously, um, Jordan Jordan's very freewheeling on Twitter, and and you'll get you'll get an idea of how he is. But again, Twitter Jordan Peterson isn't exactly the same as let's say the view of Jordan Peterson that his wife has, or his daughter and his son have, or his colleagues have. I mean, someone like John Verveke or Jonathan Peugeot, who have known Jordan for a while, they have perspectives on Jordan that are are years long, are nuanced, and 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 very high resolution. And now, what's really key is that we all struggle with this with with all of each other. And I've you know when I've talked about people before and how well we know them. Everyone is is this mixture of moreness and suchness. I mean, I've been married. I've been married to my wife for almost thirty five years. I've known her for thirty seven years, thirty eight years. Let's see. I met her thirty seven years. I met her about two years before we before we married, and she still continues to surprise me, and Ike still continued to surprise her. And people are like that. And there are sides to us that are, are, are obvious and upfront and sides to us that are hidden and revealed. And when we're looking at people through YouTube or video or tweets, we, we obviously have to make judgments and form opinions, but we, we always only see the person partially. And there's always distortion from bias and perspective that are part of these things too. Twitter brings out a side of Jordan Peterson that YouTube doesn't, and vice versa. Is it a better side? Um, now some some really like uh, Twitter Jordan, and some really don't. And and again, this is sort of the the filter that Twitter is, and Jordan's talked about that quite a bit. And you know, but but Drew's you know what, what Drew begins with is you know a really really good question. How would Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, analyze Jordan Peterson, the internet user? What that was what was behind the conversation, which I think um, was also key to understanding something about Jordan Peterson, the Greg Hurwitz, Jonathan Peugeot con um, conversation. Seeing both the Jordan Peterson of Twitter and the Jordan Peterson of YouTube as data. Now there are more Jordan Petersons out there. I don't do any Instagram. Uh, there are other social media platforms, perhaps the Jordan Peterson that his students saw, the Jordan Peterson that his colleagues saw. Um, now the Jordan Peterson of the the people that work with with Daily Wire, you know, 
So the Jordan Peterson of Twitter and the Jordan Peterson of YouTube is data for everyone in terms of evaluating how much attention you wish to give them. You know, fair enough. Watch him, don't watch him. You're, you're, nobody's, you know, making you watch the guy. I'm glad we have both because it helps us get a fuller picture of him. And then based on that fuller picture, you can decide what to do. What you do with that picture is your business. Adore, revile, listen, don't listen, whatever. The one thing that I ask is that you not worship. Worship God alone, please. People who know him unmediated by this social media filter similarly come to differing conclusions about him. The more you know about someone, the more you realize what you don't know. Explore this in any serious relationships, such as familiar relationships, and I just talked about that. I prefer the mediated, raw picture that we have access to through various social media filters than the managed filters we use to live in an age of mass media. Um, much more subject to manipulation. More data is better, but also more demanding. So the more the, the Mo you know, and I, I thought of uh, I thought of Mo from uh, the Chicago meetup when I, I there's the more you know is one so that I saw the Mo you know and I thought of my friend Mo. So this is this is sort of where we're going with this question of this gets into I forget the dude's name this professor I think he was in Macau I did a few videos about him but pro felicity. So you have the pro-felicity of Jordan on Twitter and the pro-felicity of Jordan on YouTube and you have the 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 knowledge uh, of him in other places and this this stuff gets super complex. Now let's see then I posted that tweet and Grim Grizz posted and Joseph said I get to see some of Chris Kavanaugh's tweets because you follow him. Uh, did Jordan Peterson once call him a hairy Irishman or something? I have no idea if he did or didn't. Uh, Peterson gets a um, Peterson gets a fairer shake from the CBC. And I thought, well, that's interesting because, of course, the the CBC is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and and there are a lot of issues that have been raised by a number of people because of the way the cozy relationship that Canadian media has with. Uh, the Canadian government. Now, in the United States, you have much more of a market-based system, and, and each of these systems are going to cause their own distortions because, of course, in America, you're going to have market forces really impacting the way news is disseminated. So College of Ontario psychologists launched investigations after complaints about Jordan's tweets. Now, my favorite line in this whole thing was the first statement, the 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 Wall Street Journal and their their opinion crew opened with this sentence. You would think Canadians had learned by now not to tell Jordan Peterson what to say. I thought that was the best line in this whole thing because again, Jordan is is and when I say forced gumping, I don't mean he's simple. I don't think he's simple. There's nothing simple about Jordan Peterson after listening to hours and hours, but the funny thing about Forrest Gump is that he's He's always right there. I mean, at the jogging thing and and ping pong with the Chinese, and I mean that's the that's what I mean by Forrest Gumping. So let's let's take a look at the CBC thing. Why Jordan uh, Jordan Peterson being disciplined for his tweets? Why some say that raises free speech issues? College of Ontario psychologists launched investigation after complaints about Peterson's tweets. Warning: the story contains details some readers might find distressing. It's like. 
you have a trigger warning on an article like this? I haven't read the whole article, so I don't know what's in it that someone would find distressing. But uh, apparently uh, the CBC thinks Canadians are um, extremely sensitive and, and must be warned before they stumble across something that might be found distressing. I don't know how you can live because, truth be told, um, I bump into distressing things fairly often, and, and reality doesn't seem to come with a trigger warning. Anyway, Jordan Peterson says he has no intention of giving up his fight um, with Ontario psychologist regulatory body, accusing the college of attempting to stymie his speech and discipline him for his political opinions. And yeah, if you've learned anything about Jordan Peterson, I... I talked about this with Ron Dart a long time ago. I have to get back to Ron Dart. He sent me an email and I haven't gotten back to him because I'd love to talk to Ron again. But Jordan, you know, if there's anything you learned about Jordan Peterson, don't tell him what not to say. If you push him, he'll push back. And that's why when I talked to Ron Dart, Ron Dart was sort of comparing Jordan Peterson to Erasmus. I said, no, Jordan Peterson's more like Martin Luther in that, the, the temperamental quality of Luther that sort of broke open Northern Europe was that, you know, he raises this little objection in the 95 Theses and he wants a nice confessional conversation and a nice theological conversation. He writes them in Latin and German students translate them into into German. And of course, then they're going to seek his head and you push Martin Luther that way he pushes back and you see this continual escalation and so if you you know you would think if you would th this college of psychologists these are supposed to be experts in human behavior and psychology that one of the things they could have imagined is that by doing this to Jordan Peterson he will respond in a very similar way to what happened when his, the University of Toronto and news media. And, and we know this about his temperament. There's no mystery here. <laughs> and that you have a college of psychologists that when they get together as a committee in a room, they say, we've got concerns about Jordan. What's the best way to approach him? I know. Let's threaten his license. <laughs> what? How do you think he'll respond to that? Hmm. I wonder. The amount of, and, and the fact that now, unlike 2016, he's got two plus million Twitter followers, six plus million YouTube followers, a, um, he, he's got a, he's got best-selling books that have earned him millions of dollars. He, he runs a, a perpetual tour I mean, there's no longer a book tour. It's a perpetual tour that, you know, has to earn incredible amounts of money. He's got probably an incredibly fat contract with Daily Wire. Um, yeah, he can tie you up in court a long time. And even if there's probably no realistic possibility that he will ever need his license again to practice psychology as a clinician in Canada... You know he's going to fight this just on the principle of the thing because, again, he's Jordan Peterson. This is who he is. And I am, my mind is just boggled that a group of psychologists sitting in a committee meeting couldn't think a few steps ahead and say, 
This is where this is going. Now, now I've talked to, to friends who are themselves psychologists about this, and, and many of them have mixed feelings about it because, and, and I, I can understand the, some of the arguments on the other side. Um, I, I frankly have always wondered if at some point what I do on YouTube would cause some people in the Christian Reformed Church to go after me because they didn't like what I do on YouTube. Now, this gets into the whole structural thing and the relationship between psychology and government and church and government and many of these issues that I began to get into just a little bit with John Verveke and Jordan Cooper on that video. And I'll, I'll get into those a little bit later. But I am a minister in the Christian Reformed Church. I can be disciplined by my local council. One of the big fights going on in the Christian Reformed Church is to what degree could I be disciplined by my classes if they wanted to discipline me and my council was protecting me? There's precedent in the Christian Reformed Church, although not a lot of language, but precedent in the Christian Reformed Church that classes could kick me out. Take it up another level. If Synod wanted to get rid of me in the Christian Reformed Church, could Synod kick me and my church out? And I think the clear answer to that is yes, they did it with a particular church in classes like Erie not too long ago. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. But there is an interest, a reasonable interest, for a professional association to police people for whom they credential because they credential and license these people to do this thing. Now, the really tricky question gets into how is this professional organization related to the government? Because at least in our system, the government has a monopoly on the use of violence, on the power of the sword, Romans 13. And if, if these professional organizations are very close to the government, to what degree can these can the government use these other professional organizations? You know, there's questions about this, and I've heard these conversations with respect to lawyers and the bar and certain ideological positions. And the United States has had a history of this. You know, again, in the 1950s, they had the Red Scare. So, so there's, there's actually a fair amount going on in this, which is, I think, quite important. And I, for one, would really love to... And I fully expect because, of course, he's Jordan Peterson. And even if the Ontario Psychologist Regulatory Committee seems so psychologically obtuse to not be able to predict exactly how Jordan Peterson will respond to their actions towards him, this little fella in Sacramento, California, doesn't really find it surprising at all. And so part of me would love to see Jordan Peterson use his considerable wealth to hire lawyers and say... Well, let's fight this out in court now, shall we? Because, well, I would imagine there's a fair amount of, of good legislation. And unlike probably a lot of psychologists who might have similar concerns with Jordan, but don't have the possibility of, if not at least having the money for legal action, to be able to raise the money. Because I would expect, just like when Jordan Peterson nearly lost his job at University of Toronto, his Patreon ballooned to huge levels, if Jordan Peterson would really like to fight these people in court, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who would like to contribute money to support that effort and pay those lawyers to have that court fight. And 
I, you know, it's these kinds of court fights that actually are vital for governments and, and how we raise the resolution and find nuance and draw the very careful lines. Just like a lot of the drama that's going on in the Christian Reformed Church is, even if it might bring on the death of the Christian Reformed Church, actually in some ways healthy for the Christian Reformed Church to do the confessional conversations and we can all learn from these fights. And, and so in many ways, don't waste your troubles. So back to the article. The College of Psychologists of Ontario has ordered Peterson, who has gained international fame for his best-selling self-help books and lectures, to undergo a media training program. Now, when Daily Wire um, gave me a copyright strike for the little bit of the Exodus series that I put in after I had very clearly said, Jordan said I could do this, and yet Daily Wire didn't just send me a private letter, but gave me a copyright strike via YouTube, I had to sit and watch copyright school from YouTube before I could continue. So I've got a sense of what, but that's a tiny little thing. I have, I have a sense of what Jordan is, you know, they imagine they're, and, and again, I think about this. This is a college of psychologists who imagine they're going to sort of retrain Jordan in this. And I think, If you wanted, if I, I can't think of any situation just more perfectly matched of all the psychologists in Ontario, this is the guy you're going to make your fight with. I mean, it's everything to do, and it, it just looks everything like finding a perfect text, test case. So here it is. <laughs> I, I swear, when I saw this thing, I just, I just was completely dumbfounded by the archetypal clarity and nature of this entire episode and again this is exactly what jordan this seems to be why god gave us jordan peterson because this is the stuff that not only he just falls into but it seems he attracts Media training programs saying some of his tweets may be degrading the profession and even raise concerns about his ability as a psychologist. Peterson, a professor emeritus, which is another whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like Joseph was going to, you know, divorce Mary quietly is sort of what University of Toronto, how they emeritized Jordan Peterson. Really? Professor Emeritus of Psychology at University of Toronto has sparked controversy over his views on women, masculinity, gender identity, namely refusing to use per people's personal pronouns. And again, all the way back to the pronouns. And again, a whole committee full of psychologists. This was the tack they took. I, 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 it just, I, I would have to question the credentials of those psychologists just on this matter because you you must know a lot about psychology to have reached that level of status, but it sure seems like you don't know the subject of psychology, which is studying human beings, particularly the one, which is Jordan Peterson, who has shown himself to us in abundant resolution since 2016. I swear, this is this is why there is a God, because because it's God writes the best stories. 
God makes the best characters. And Jordan Peterson, this character, a story like this, it's absolutely archetypal. Peterson has refused the regulatory body's demands. Surprise! Arguing that the tweets cited by college have nothing to do with his profession of, a, of psychology. The case has raised broad issues about freedom of expression and whether the college is overstepping its authority to penalize the controversial psychologist for his opinion. I can either stop or give up or accede to the demands or continue to fight. And I'm not stopping. Can, can, could you really find anyone who's paid any attention to Jordan Peterson since 2016 for whom that sentence is a surprise? Boggles my mind. Peterson's battle with the college has won him allies among freedom of expression advocates. Really? Was, did that come as a surprise to you too? And drawn support from public figures like conservative party leader Pierre, I don't know how to say his last name, and Tesla and Twitter boss Elon Musk. James Turk, director of the Center of Freedom of Expression at Toronto Metropolitan University, said while he opposes many of Peterson's views, he's deeply troubled by the actions of the college. There's no reason whatsoever for the College of Psychologists to try to stop him from expressing those views. It's really worrisome in a democratic society when a professional body feels it has the right to censor public political speech of, of all of the members over whom it has regulatory authority. That is a very troubling thing. It's got a real point. Peterson said his battle with the college isn't just about him, but the idea that a regulatory body backed by government power can try to silence someone by threatening their livelihood. Yes, College of Psychologists couldn't see this one coming. They ought to be they ought to be dismissed from this board just for sheer incompetence. Just astounding, 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 astounding. Anyway. So, so on Twitter, Michaela asked when, when she sort of broke this on her Twitter account, should we do a podcast? I said, yes, definitely do a podcast. Definitely do a podcast. Why? Because there are important issues beneath this. Absolutely. Issues worth exploring. And I haven't had a chance to watch this yet. So I'm not going to comment on this podcast, although it I did watch the first little while. And, you know, it just, it opens with, a spellbinder, of course. It's the it's the trailer. So, let's see. I get through the 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 Bible teaser and if this is what's going on with colleges and if they're controlling working professionals, so that the working professionals have to work in a way that isn't truthful. I mean, how do you even fight? How do you fight back against that? At what point do you just stop playing? in that game. You know, people have asked me that too. Why don't you just give up your license? And I would say, well, because I wouldn't be giving it up. I would be allowing it to be taken away from me. Like if and, I and the and the and this group of psychologists is surprised that Jordan would in this moment draw very careful distinctions and dig in like a badger. <laughs> Did you pay no attention to 2016? Again, it this just boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind. If I decide in a year that I don't want to be a licensed clinical psychologist because the whole damn profession has become corrupt, that's a whole different issue than letting this pack of craven commissar cowards utilize the complaints of random people online to justify 
their own envy and desire to prosecute and then fold in the face of that opposition. It's like, I'm not going to do that. The only thing you have in a complex situation is the truth. That's all you have. Say what you want about Jordan's tweets. What he just said there is true. You've got to take it with some nuance because truth is a, a just like a human being, something that there's, there's suchness and there's moreness to it too. And so, and this is exactly why these kinds of fights are important. And if in fact Jordan decides to take them to court and fight this thing to the, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, with the whole Twitter thing, I won't, I won't delete the tweets and he didn't and he won. And, you know, did he win the C-16 battle? Not necessarily, but is that battle really over? Because the battles are sort of nested in themselves here. And, oh, again, you, you, you just can't make this stuff up. It, I'm just amazing. That's why you have to abide by the truth, you know, because when things get complex around you, all you have there that's solid ground is the truth. And so the reason you abide by the truth is so that you can say what you have to say about what you've done and who you are, and you can do that under impossibly difficult circumstances, and possibly that will sustain you through that. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right with that statement. Now, where this goes, I don't know, but I wanted to bring in well, a little bit more story time. So, so Grim Grizz had a, um, a kind of a randos conversation. I, I, I didn't get too far into it because she she named a book that I simply had to look up, and that's where this comes in. She named the myth of mental health, which I thought, ooh, someone wrote a book named the mental myth of mental health because this question of sanity. It's something that I've poked at before. When, when Jordan has talked about, there's even a playlist all these times that Jordan for a while was talking about the fact that sanity is not just whether the, the mechanisms behind your ears, the biochemical cellular mechanisms behind your ears are all behaving the right way. That's not all of it. And I actually had a offline conversation with a former graduate student, a very close working graduate student with Jordan Peterson, who was who was doing work in this area of, you know, can what, what, what are we really talking about when we talk about mental health? What are we really talking about when we talk about competency? What, 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 do, what do we really mean by all of this? And Nahama made this comment about a book, and I had to look it up, and so I did. And... Hmm. Let's play some of this because apparently I the the book that I you know apparently like the 50th anniversary. So this is something that was being raised in the middle of the 20th century. Now now after getting bit by Daily Wire, I'm a little bit more jittery about copyright strikes, but uh, we'll we'll proceed anyway. Preface: 50 years after the myth of mental illness. Good intentions will always be pleaded for every assumption of authority. 
It is hardly too strong to say that the Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intentions. Daniel Webster. One. Now, right there, that quote from Daniel Webster is a biggie. And part of what has really come out in everything that's gone on since 2016 is the a lot of the wisdom that has been built into the American system. Because in many ways, the American system, written by a bunch of classicists who were pushing against a British, a British monarchy, while themselves also being the heirs of... Um, a lot of British jurisprudence I've got a couple thoughts in my head that distracted me terrible ADHD um, they developed a system to protect the people from the government while hopefully also developing a system where the government would help the people but that help and protect dynamic is is really really tricky let's see if I can play this in a different player Preface, 50 years after the... The reason I can't play it directly in this, I've got a little issue with my device driver, and every time I would, um, I would, I, I play Audible, one monitor goes out, and it just kind of wreaks havoc in the setup, so... The myth of mental illness. Good intentions will always be pleaded for every assumption of authority. It is hardly too strong to say that the Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intentions. Daniel Webster. Which is, of course, exactly what's going on with this college of this, this professional oversight committee that, well, we have to we have to protect the good name of psychologists. And it's like. I've known my fair share of psychologists, the, the old saying that people go into psychology because they want to heal themselves. I've got good friends who are psychologists. We just did a just did a, a thing with, with Eamon and Catherine, who I love dearly. And I've, I've met some amazing psychologists. And I've met some psychologists I wouldn't leave my dog with. One. Uh, the same could be said of pastors. So try not to pick on you. My aim in this essay is to raise the question, is there such a thing as mental illness and who argue that there is not. That was the opening line of my essay, The Myth of Mental Illness, published in the February 1960 issue of The American Psychologist. 1960. The book of the same title appeared the following year. In the 1950s, when I wrote The Myth of Mental Illness, the notion that it is the responsibility of the federal government to provide health care to the American people had not yet entered national consciousness. Most persons called mental patients were then considered chronic and incurable and were confined in state mental hospitals. The physicians who cared for them were employees of the state governments. Physicians in the private sector treated voluntary patients and were paid by their clients or the client's families. Since that time, the formerly sharp distinctions between medical hospitals and mental hospitals, voluntary and involuntary mental patients, and private and public psychiatry 
have blurred into non-existence. Now, he's talking about the United States. Canada, I would assume the systems are far more enmeshed in terms of the government. Virtually all medical and mental health care is now the responsibility of and is regulated by the federal government, and its cost is paid in full or in part by the federal government. Few, if any, psychiatrists make a living from fees collected directly from patients, and none is free to contract directly with his patients about the terms of the therapeutic contract governing their relationship. Everyone defined as a mental health professional is now legally responsible for preventing his patient from being dangerous to himself or others. In <laughs> this gets into the Canadian um, um, medical-assisted suicide regime, but go on. Short, psychiatry is medicalized through and through. The opinion of official American psychiatry, embodied in the American Psychiatric Association, contains the imprimatur of the federal and state governments. There is no legally valid non-medical approach to mental illness, just as there is no such approach to measles or melanoma. This is why, 50 years ago, it made sense to assert that mental illnesses are not diseases, but it makes no sense to say so today. Debate about what counts as mental illness has been replaced by legislation about the medicalization and demedicalization of behavior. Old diseases, such as homosexuality and hysteria, disappear, while new diseases, such as gambling and smoking, appear as if to replace them. Fifty years ago, the question, what is mental illness, was of interest to the general public as well as to philosophers, sociologists, and medical professionals. This is no longer the case. The question has been answered, dismissed would be more accurate, by the holders of political power. Representing the state, they decree that mental illness is a disease like any other. Political power and professional self-interest unite in turning a false belief into a lying fact. In 1999, President William J. Clinton declared, mental illness can be accurately diagnosed, successfully treated, just as physical illness. Tipper. Now, the fact that this is Bill Clinton makes the story all the more, all the better. Gore, President Clinton's mental health advisor, stated, one of the most widely believed and most damaging myths is that mental illness is not a physical disease. Nothing could be further from the truth. Surgeon General David Satcher agreed. Just as things go wrong with the heart and kidneys and liver, so things go wrong with the brain. A White House fact sheet on myths and facts about mental illness asserted, research in the last decade proves that mental illnesses are diagnosable disorders of the brain. In 2007, Joseph Biden, then senator, now vice president, declared, addiction is a neurobiological disease, not a lifestyle choice, and it's about time we start treating it as such. We must lead by example and change the names of our federal research institutes to accurately reflect this reality. By changing the way we talk about addiction, we change the way people think about addiction, both of which are critical steps in getting past the social stigma too often associated with the disease. At the same time, Biden introduced to the Senate a bill titled the Recognizing Addiction as a Disease Act. 
the legislation called for renaming the National Institute on Drug Abuse as the National Institute on Diseases of Addiction and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism as the National Institute on Alcohol Disorders and Health. In 2008, Congress required insurance companies to provide people with mental illnesses the same access to affordable coverage as those with physical illnesses. The claim that mental illnesses are diagnosable disorders of the brain is not based on scientific research. It is a lie, an error, or a naive revival of the somatic premise of the long-discredited humoral theory of disease. My claim that mental illnesses are fictitious illnesses is also not based on scientific research. It rests on the materialist scientific definition of illness as a pathological alteration of cells, tissues, and organs. If we accept this scientific definition of disease, then it follows that mental illness is a metaphor, and that asserting that view is asserting an analytic truth not subject to empirical falsification. My great, unforgivable sin in the myth of mental illness was calling public attention to the linguistic pretensions of psychiatry and its preemptive rhetoric. Who can be against helping suffering patients or treating treatable diseases? Who can be for ignoring sick people or, worse, refusing to give patients life-saving treatment? Rejecting that jargon, I insisted that mental hospitals are like prisons, not hospitals. That involuntary mental hospitalization is a type of imprisonment, not medical care. And that coercive psychiatrists function as judges and jailers, not healers. I suggested that we view and understand mental illnesses and psychiatric responses to them as matters of law and rhetoric, not matters of medicine or science. This sort of rhetorical preemption is, of course, not limited to mental health. On the contrary, it is a popular political stratagem. For example, my late friend, the development economist P.T. Bauer, saw the same sort of deceptive rhetoric controlling the debate about foreign aid. To call official wealth transfers aid promotes an unquestioning attitude. It disarms criticism, obscures realities, and prejudges results. Who can be against aid to the less fortunate? Although it is intuitively obvious that there is no such thing as a disease of the mind, the idea that mental illness is not a medical problem runs counter to public education. Psychiatric dogma defined... Now, you have to listen carefully here. This gets super complex because our understanding... This is where you get into cognitive science. Because remember, a disease of the mind. Now, pay attention. He said mind, not brain. And you probably didn't catch that, because if you say a disease of the brain, you might think again at the cellular level, dysfunction at the cellular level would be a disease of the brain. But a disease of the mind, is the mind material? Is that what we're talking about? How would one treat that? And now I, you know, this is super complex for me, obviously, because anybody who follows this channel who knows what happens in my day job knows that I regularly um, deal with, work with, minister to, live with people with a whole variety of mental illnesses. And and I would, I, I think he entitles this, and I haven't, by no means, I haven't read the whole book, but he entitles this using myth in the sense of untrue story. And I would, I would rather interpret the title as myth as in terms of globalizing story or um, worldview, because that is exactly what's going on. If you go back to Eamon's comment in one of our marriage series where 
you know, basically one of his college professors says, well, you know, as as Islam is to many countries in the Middle East, um, psychology is to the West. It's just it, when he said that, it was just like, yeah, and it goes all the way up to the government. And it's it's a huge, huge, huge thing. Finding psychiatry as a branch of medicine and mental disease as brain disease and relentless medical political propaganda. Thus, when a person hears me say that there is no such thing as mental illness, he is likely to reply, but I know so-and-so who was diagnosed as mentally ill and turned out to have a brain tumor. In due time, with refinements in medical technology, psychiatrists will be able to show that all mental illnesses are bodily diseases. This contingency does not falsify my contention that mental illness is a metaphor. It verifies it. The physician who discovers that a particular person diagnosed as mentally ill suffers from a brain disease discovers that the patient was misdiagnosed. The patient did not have a mental illness. He had, and has, a physical illness. The physician's erroneous diagnosis is not proof that the term mental illness refers to a class of brain diseases. In part, such a process of biological discoveries has characterized the history of medicine, one form of madness after another being identified as the manifestation of one or another somatic disease, such as beriberi, epilepsy, or neurosyphilis. The result of such a discovery is that the illness ceases to be a form of psychopathology and is classified and treated as neuropathology. If all the conditions now called mental illnesses proved to be brain diseases, there would be no need for the notion of mental illness and the term would become devoid of meaning. However, because the term refers to the judgments of some persons about the bad behaviors of other persons, the opposite is what actually happens. The history of psychiatry is the history of an ever-expanding list of mental disorders. 2. The thesis I had put forward in The Myth of Mental Illness was not a fresh insight, much less a new discovery. It only seemed that way, and seems that way even more so today, because we have replaced the old religious, humanistic perspective on the tragic nature of life with a modern, dehumanized, pseudo-medical perspective on it. The secularization of everyday life, and with it the medicalization of the soul and of suffering of all kinds, begins in late 16th century England. Shakespeare's Macbeth, 1611, is a harbinger. Now, again, this timing is not incidental. This is, of course, the beginning of modernity. Overcome by guilt for her murderous deeds, Lady Macbeth goes mad. She feels agitated, is anxious, unable to eat, rest, or sleep. Her behavior disturbs Macbeth, who sends for a doctor to cure his wife. The doctor arrives and quickly recognizes the source of Lady Macbeth's problem. Doctor to gentlewoman. Go to, go to. You have known what you should not. Gentlewoman. She has spoke what she should not. I am sure of that. The doctor tries to reject Macbeth's effort to medicalize his wife's disturbance. Doctor. This disease is beyond my practice. Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their deaf pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician, I think, but dare not speak. Macbeth rejects this diagnosis and demands that the doctor cure his wife. Shakespeare then, in the following dialogue, has the doctor pronounce his immortal words, exactly the opposite of what psychiatrists and the public are now taught to say and think. Macbeth. 
How does your patient, doctor? Doctor? Not so sick, my lord, as she is troubled with thick-coming fancies that keep her from her rest. Macbeth. Cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon her heart. And again, uh, she probably needs a priest, not a doctor. Doctor? Therein the patient must minister to himself. Shakespeare's insight that the mad person must minister to himself is at once profound and obvious. Profound because witnessing suffering calls forth in us the impulse to help, to do something for or to the sufferer. Yet also obvious because understanding Lady Macbeth's suffering as a consequence of internal rhetoric, the voice of conscience, imagination, hallucination, the remedy must be internal rhetoric, self-conversation, internal ministry. Shakespeare's rhetorical understanding of mental illness is portrayed most clearly and most dramatically in Othello, in which the title character is driven mad by a combination of Iago's malicious words and his own destructive and self-destructive self-conversation, jealousy. Iago. Work on, my medicine, work. Thus credulous fools are caught. Othello shall go mad, and his unbookish jealousy might construe poor Cassio's smiles gestures and light behavior quite in the wrong. By the end of the 19th century, the medical conquest of the soul is secure. Only writers are left to discern and denounce the tragic error. Søren Kierkegaard, 1813-1855, warned, In our time, it is the physician who exercises the cure of souls, and he knows what to do. Doctor, you must travel to a watering place, and then must keep a riding horse, and then diversion, diversion, plenty of diversion. Patient, to relieve an anxious conscience? Doctor, bosh, get out with that stuff. An anxious conscience, no such thing exists anymore. Today, the role of the physician as curer of the soul is uncontested. There are no more bad people in the world. There are only mentally ill people. The insanity defense annuls misbehavior, the sin of yielding to temptation and tragedy. Lady Macbeth is human. Not because she is, like all of us, a fallen being, she is human because she is a mentally ill patient, who, like humans, is inherently healthy-slash-good unless mental illness makes her sick-slash-ill-behaved. The current trend of critical opinion is toward an upward re-evaluation of Lady Macbeth, who is said to be re-humanized by her insanity and her suicide. 3. Everything I read, observed, and learned supported my adolescent impression that the behaviors we call mental illnesses, and to which we attach the hundreds of derogatory labels in our lexicon of lunacy, are not medical diseases. They are the products of the medicalization of disturbing or disturbed behaviors. That is, of the observer's construction and definition of the behavior of the persons he observes as medically disabled individuals needing medical treatment. This cultural transformation is driven mainly by the modern therapeutic ideology that has replaced the old theological worldview and the political and professional interests it sets in motion. I should mention here one of my childhood experiences that influenced me strongly and played an important part in my writing of the myth of mental illness. Growing up in Budapest in the 1920s, I learned about the famous 19th century Hungarian obstetrician Ignaz Semmelweis, 1818-1865, and his tragic fate. 
His statue stood, and still stands, in a small park in front of the city's old General Hospital, not far from the gymnasium I attended for eight years. Zemmelweis discovered the cause of puerperal childbed fever before the discovery of bacteria as causative agents of diseases. As he accurately but impolitely put it, the cause was the doctor's dirty hands. Zemmelweis also developed a method for preventing the terrifying epidemics of puerperal fever endemic to mid-19th century hospital maternity wards, hand-washing with chlorinated water. I was deeply moved by the story of Zemmelweis's life. The rejection of his discovery and remedy by the medical profession inconvenienced by it, and his incarceration and death in an insane asylum. It taught me at an early age that being wrong can be dangerous, but being right, when society regards the majority's falsehood as truth, could be fatal. This principle is especially relevant to the false truths that are a basic part of an entire society's belief system, and that support economically and existentially important common practices. In the past, fundamental false truths were religious in nature. Today, they are mainly medical in nature. The lesson of Zemmelweis's fate served me well. And, and of course, we've just had this massive fight over COVID. Now, this is super complex because part of what we're looking at, well, hang on, I'll switch to something else. This conversation, which I haven't really gotten into, and the the last part of this, which is behind the paywall, is really very good. The it, it was imagined in a very Cartesian way that, which is it's a silly, silly idea. It was imagined in a very Cartesian way that there's somehow this sort of firewall between a human being and the rest of the world. No, it's a, it's a completely silly idea because, of course, everything we eat can make us fatter or thinner, can help us grow or decline, uh, can make us healthy or unhealthy. But when they talked about the kennelization in this video, they talked about how, let's say, trauma, you know, impacts the brain, impacts the mind, and talked about the use of psychedelics in terms of in terms of you know to maybe sort of break some canalizations and re help rewire and that's why set and setting you know it, it's almost like to use a very crude metaphor let's say you're in a car accident and your arm gets broken and you wait too long to go see a doctor to have it properly set the doctor might have to re-break it in order to set it properly happens with noses in basketball let's say I had two sons who had their noses broken playing high school basketball so part of what part of what you see in something like the the myth of mental illness is is late modernity's categorizations which have been breaking down and that's part of the reason modernity is receding because these categories are breaking down and we're finding ourselves much more connected to the world and we're finding ourselves much more plastic in terms of our relationship to the world but but that also just opens the door to the to, to the to the idea and the impact that so much of what has been called, well, you have a mental illness. Well, no, you have a behavioral issue that 
our definitions of sanity are calling insane. And, and this is a lot of what he's getting at with pushing on these categories. And, and so when, when I talk about sanity as being a public thing, and it runs all the way up to our ideals, none of this is beyond religious imagination. So there's a ton here. And, and so when you go all the way back to, to, to Jordan's tweets and his behavior and the relationship between the government and psychology, none of this is, should be seen as surprising or accidental. And this then gets into, you know, some of these ideas that I've been thinking about. Some of them came out a little bit in in my conversation with John Verveke and Jordan B. Cooper, where the relationship, again, between religion and government. I mean, part of the value of setting up Secularism, which again with modernity is is unraveling. Secularism is is the government won't get into your theology. They do have a right to regulate your behavior. I can't speed. I can't do certain things against my neighbor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, for a good long time, there's sort of been on and off to varying degree general with respect to what C.S. Lewis calls the Tao, general agreement as to some broad lines over what is permitted and what is not permitted. But all governments in one way or another instantiate a religious perspective. And the degree to which they up the resolution or try to keep the resolution as low as possible, I think that's a lot of what's happened in the West and I think partly um, has been bless the West in terms of its religious liberty and all of these re realities. And again, for those who say, oh, the, the Protestant Reformation was a terrible idea. All of these are things are blessings of the Protestant Reformation that now Catholics and Orthodox and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists are all enjoying. And now that modernity is breaking down, there's you know there's there's reason to there's reason to pause and this is where Jordan is you know a very interesting figure because he's always sort of back and forth over the line of modernity. Sometimes he's he's sort of pushing the envelope beyond modernity, and other times he runs back and says, "Hey, wait a minute, what about these categories?" and and he usually has a point. So on one hand, this episode is just endlessly amusing because of the seeming obtuseness of a college of psychologists who couldn't seem to have found any other way to address their concerns beyond pushing a man for whom that pushing would have the most obvious reaction that any of us could have predicted. <laughs> But at the same time, unleashing and revealing for us deep, important questions, inviting us into conversations. This, again, is exactly what happened in 2016. And so in some ways, 2023 is 2016 all over again. 
and it's we're we're, we're it's not going to be just compelled speech and C16 and pronouns. It's going to be much bigger, deeper areas, which is again why you want to have courts and lawyers and judges and legislation and social conversations and all of the chewing on this stuff we're doing now. So I think I've given you some things to think about and I can't wait to read the comments for this. And, and we, we, will, we will just see where this thing goes, won't we? So leave a comment.